Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple. Uh, another guest with us this week. I'm not talking to myself this week, so that, that's always fun. Uh, my buddy, John Sapinaro, host of the Till Mets Do Us Part podcast. That's on Chop Sports. Uh, actor, comic, diehard Mets fan. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming along. Thank you for having me, Tim. I'm uh, really looking forward to doing it. I like when you talk to yourself. I've listened to your podcast <laughs> when you just like screaming off into the ether and it's like my favorite 30 minutes of the week. <laughs> oh, see, you know, and, and jumping into it, like, I mean, I was with Andrew for such a long Andrew Claudio for such a long time. I was with Jacob for such a long time. I started doing it by myself and I'm like, I was terrified. I'm like, oh, how am I going to fill a half an hour just talking to myself? And I kind of look forward to it now and then now. But uh, no, it's good to it's always nice to converse. And you were, you guys were kind enough to have me until Mets do us part. So uh, happy to reciprocate. Met you at, at Queens Baseball Convention and that was fun. I'm like, oh, we got to do this. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I get to talk Mets in my sleep. So it was really great at the Queens Baseball Convention to finally put, um, well, I guess sometimes you see people's faces on their Twitter avatar, but to actually put the person behind the Twitter avatar to, uh, you know, that same uh, Twitter personality that they have, which I did with you, but so many other people. And uh, it was it was really great to be a part of. It's something that I've wanted to be a part of for a long time and my schedule would never allow me to do. So, uh, you know, Keith and Dan and all those people over at QBC do a great job. And, uh, you know, if for nothing else, but being able to meet you and meet other great Met fans that I've only interacted with virtually, it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. And you were like uh, you were a master of ceremonies. So you were up there, you know, you were shoulder to shoulder with some of these giants. I mean, I was I was thrilled just to be invited uh, to be on the state of the Mets panel. And that was a blast for me. But the rest of the day I was a fan. And, you know, you're up there, you're doing your thing. You know, you're uh, who are you up there with the. Um, Ah, what the hell is his name from FAN? It's a great panel. I, I was up there with uh, with with Jay Horwitz and Will Carafello from from the Mets, uh, the PR and um, alumni directors, and then or the social media and alumni directors, I should say. And then I was there with Todd Frazier. Um, but I, I did have the opportunity to interrupt some of the other um, platforms, which were great. Uh, you know, the the um, not only you guys with State of the Mets, but then the SNY panel with um, Sal Licata and Gary There's- Apple and Omar Minaya. That was really awesome. So yeah. yeah. I mean, it was cool. It was cool all around to just be able to, you know, kind of rub elbows with some of those folks. <laughs> oh, what a day. It was just, a, I mean, my mom was there. She was having lunch, having a beer. It was a, just a very, very cool day. And um, I mean, I've been to Mulcahy's many times. I'm from Long Island. I live 10 minutes away. And uh, yeah, to see just everyone kind of together, especially after the last few years, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very special day. But on to the Metropolitans. Mm-hmm. You got to be happy with what they did up until the lockout hit. Oh, absolutely, man. How could you not be? I, I said on our podcast until Mets do us part that, you know, same old Mets officially died. We put the final nail in the coffin when we signed Max Scherzer. And I think that that rhetoric died a few times along the way. I think for me, I knew when the ownership changed over to Steve Cohen that that was going to be the end of it. I know that some Met fans can't help but feel spurned with, you know, 25 plus years of Wilpon ownership. So, you know, I know that they were like, well, let's wait and see. And I was like, nah, this is going to be a different thing, man. This guy came up and bought a baseball team straight cash. Like this is going to be (laughs) an entirely different uh, entity moving forward. So I knew that was kind of the first step. The second step along the way was trading for Lindor, which is something that the Wilpons really would have never done. I mean, realistically, in the history of the Wilpon ownership, they did that maybe two times at that level. Mike Piazza being one, which, of course, Doubleday had a huge hand in keeping Piazza here when the Wilpons were prepared to let him walk. And the other time and the only other time they did it solo was when they acquired Johan Santana. But that was kind of a no brainer at that point because they really didn't give up much in the way of, you know, big time process. It was a uh, contract that Minnesota had to move on from. And it was also at a time before baseball salaries exploded the way that they did. I know relative to the time they did invest a lot of money in Johan, but so going out and acquiring Lindor was big and then signing Lindor to the richest contract extension for a shortstop in the history of baseball to the tune of $341 million. That's another nail in the proverbial coffin. But once they go out and they get Scherzer and Scherzer could have gone anywhere, there was so much rhetoric about how he would never go to the Mets. And I got to be honest with you, Tim, I bought into it. 
I was like, they're not going to get Scherzer. That's why on the podcast, me and my co-host, Ibby, like we called Marcus Stroman a must re-sign because we both thought independently that he was the second best pitcher on the market. We thought that he was a guy who proved that he could do it here in New York. And he was a guy that, you know, should have long-term durability because he doesn't rely on his fastball. He doesn't rely Mm -hmm. on, you know, uh, I mean, he is a great athlete, which, you know, kind of worries you as he gets older, but he was a kind of guy that I thought he's an absolute must resign. Well, that kind of goes away when they bring in the best free agent available, the best free agent pitcher available, and arguably the greatest pitcher of the generation in Max Scherzer. So, you know, you got to love what they did. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that they spent $124 million in the span of six hours when the Wilpons never spent $124 million in one single offseason. So for all the Mets fans that listen to this that think, oh, Cohen is just like the Wilpons and let's see and let's see and let's see if you don't believe in and look i i get it that spending money doesn't mean a damn thing in terms of winning but if you don't believe that it's different i don't know what you're watching <laughs> oh i mean i think we've already seen that and, and, and you, you kind of felt the anxiety before things started happening and people oh my god oh Syndergaard walked and oh they haven't signed a starting pitcher yet and people were genuinely freaking out and i get that that's you know that's it's ingrained in us as Mets fans. We just we expect the worst at this point. And that's, you know, it's just it comes with the territory. Um, I, I said it, you know, I think the morning before the Scherzer stuff started heating up, I said, oh, it's he's still going back to L.A. But how cool would that be if, uh, if it was him and Jake and, you know, 24 hours later it happened? It's like, oh, my goodness. You know, they got a lot done between um, uh, Canna and, and Marte and Escobar. Uh, you know, they still have stuff on the docket. I, I'd like to see the, the bullpen reinforced. I'd like to see another starter added. I'd love to see a fourth outfielder. Um, they got to figure out what to do with their incumbent core, who, mm-hmm. you know, the remaining guys who they're all capable ball players. We'll get to them in a little bit. But I guess the most pressing issue, of course, and this is heating up, we're recording this on Monday at like 5 p.m. Eastern. Um, the Mets are have finalized their managerial candidates. It comes down to Buck Showalter, the, the man with the experience, and uh, and two bench coaches, Joe Espada, who's been with Houston for a number of years, which was with the Yankees before that, and Matt Quattraro, who's been the bench coach in Tampa Bay. He would follow in the footsteps of Charlie Montoya, uh, Davey Martinez, both you know left Tampa Bay and went on to have the – Varying degrees of success. We'll see how those both how those guys both pan out. I know Montoya has a monster in Toronto, but um, do you have a preference as far as experience or quote unquote new school, John? We just talked about this on last week's episode of Till Mets in depth. We spent about 35 minutes on just the managerial candidates, and it was before it was whittled down to those top three. So there were other names, Brad Osmus and a few of the other folks that were still, you know, had taken first round interviews. I personally think that there's not a lot of stake in having been a manager before. I just simply don't think it matters that much. To me. Now, I do think in this particular instance, it may matter to the Mets a lot. I do. I acknowledge that because you have Louis Rojas hadn't been a manager before. Carlos Beltran, I know the circumstances were different, but hadn't been a manager before. Mickey Calloway hadn't been a manager before. The list goes on and on and on. Basically, four times in a row, the Mets have gone to inexperience rather than experience. And I do think that when you're a win-now team, with the which the Mets are clearly are, they're kind of trending that way over the next three or four years. They have a, a window to try to win a World Series as currently constituted. I do think there's something to be said for them wanting stability and experience. That's what leads me to believe that Buck Showalter is going to get the job. Now, I don't really love Buck Showalter and it's not anything to do with Buck Showalter. It's for me, Tim, it's what Buck Showalter represents for an entire sect of Mets fans and baseball fans. They like Buck Showalter because he's the name they've heard. He's the guy they know. And I get that. We're all guilty of that, right? We all wanted Theo Epstein or David Stearns or Billy Bean to be the because he was the person we're familiar with. Uh, We all kind of said, hey, I think I like this guy, Billy Epler. Why? Because he was a person we were somewhat familiar with. So I get that familiarity goes a long way. But for me, 
I think sometimes you have to do a little bit of critical thinking and a little bit of thinking on your own and kind of come up with what you really want. And that's why my guy would be Joe Espada. The other reason why I'm not huge on Buck Showalter is, again, he represents something that a lot of Met fans, you'll, you'll hear this from Met fans and baseball fans. And I'm not trying to be ageist when I say this, but it, let's say Stroman was still on the team. Right. Let's say they had re-signed Stroman. You'll hear from people if Buck got the job. And I know this is a purely hypothetical situation, but they'll be like, good. He can finally fix Marcus Stroman. Fix what? Exactly. You know what? Because he's a young, outspoken African-American guy with tattoos. Like to me, there's a lot of Met fans and a lot of baseball fans that fall into this old mentality. Now, I'm not saying that the Mets don't need a little bit more discipline and a little bit more stability as a team. I think last year showed us that they couldn't handle prosperity. They weren't really a good team, but they were a team that managed to stay in first place for over a hundred days and then not make the playoffs. So clearly something was amiss. And I do think that Buck could fix some of that, but I just almost don't want him to get the job because of what a hiring of somebody like him would represent to an old school group of fans that I think is a little out of touch. I don't think Buck's out of touch. I think some fans are out of touch and I kind of just don't want to see them win out when I think that as Met fans, as the Mets organization, as Major League Baseball, we all need to kind of move more into the future and be a little bit more progressive. And I think that Buck getting the job, again, has nothing to do with him. I think it represents a lack of progressiveness across the landscape of fandom, if that makes sense. It does. And I think it I think it holds water as well. And, and you know, I know exactly what you're getting at with the um, – you know, get some guys in line. And, and that's, that's the, probably the, the incorrect point of view from fan. I've, we've all, we've all seen these fans and heard these fans express those opinions. And it's, you know, that's, that's of course way off base. Um, that being said, I mean, we saw the lack of, I mean, and this is of course outside that, that door uh, as far as, um, we don't know what happens behind those clubhouse doors, but there were times where it seemed the Mets needed an adult in the room. And I think the roster, just the roster itself being upgraded the way that it was, will kind of provide that veteran presence and, and keep everybody focused. And again, this is all speculation, but I see the merits of a of a Buck Showalter hiring. Um you know, to be honest, and I've been saying this on the show and, and on Twitter for a while now, I personally don't care who the Mets hire. Um, I might even make it the title. Who gives a buck? <laughs> I, I really <laughs> I, I don't, man. Like, I, I honestly, um, all these guys have merits. Only the Mets know exactly what they're looking for. That's why I was kind of happy to see the, the interview process play out, that the Mets didn't just, oh, we have our guy and we're hiring. No, like, they they – uh, clearly spoke to a lot of people or had a lot of people on their list. They whittled that down. Now they're down to three finalists. Um, you know, they might speak to Joe Espada or, or Matt Quattraro and find and figure out that, wow, this, you know, despite the experience that Buck brings, one of these guys might be much better suited for what we're trying to do. Um, I, I will say that I, I wasn't immediately sold on Buck when his name first came up. In, you know, looking into it and seeing, I guess, how he's handled himself, how he's handled the teams that he's managed in the past. And, you know, people put a knock on it, on a knock on him, that he's taken all these teams right to the cusp of winning. And then he loses his job and then they go on and win. I don't see that really as a knock on him. I see that. I see him as as kind of bridging that gap. And I think the Mets kind of want to do that. I mean, look what he did with the Yankees. He, he brought that team to where it needed to be. Tory took uh, to a wall. First, it was Stick Michael, but then Tory took the reins and 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 took it from there. But um, that team needed a Buck Showalter at the time. Same thing mm-hmm. in Arizona. Uh, you know, he brought them as far as he could, and um, he probably could have taken them a little further. But you know, it just ran its course. Even in Baltimore, I mean, what he did with the, the a very young Baltimore team. He had Andrew Jones, Nick Markakis. Uh, Geez, he had a young Kevin Gosman on. He had like a 96 or 98 win team in Baltimore one year. I like what he brings. He won three manager of the year awards. He says he's open to analytics, which is nice. Um, you know, I guess, would I prefer 
someone who can take that information from a front office and actually disperse it to the players so that they can absorb it and actually use it. Sure. I'm not sure how, you know, Buck Showalter is going to be looking at exit velocities and, and, and heat maps and, you know, I'm sure he can get the hang of it, but didn't Steve Cohen say he doesn't want to pay guys to learn. If that's the case, maybe Buck Showalter's not the pick. The fans want him. I mean, you see these polls on Twitter. Buck Showalter's winning out by like 80, 90% votes. Yeah. At this point, I think the Mets almost have to go after him, but I, I would be perfectly fine with anybody they have on the list right now. Yeah, I mean, I would have been largely fine with anybody that they interviewed and even some of the people that they were linked to prior to the interviews starting. And that was again, another knock and it's, it's not a knock on buck. I like you have kind of warmed to it. Maybe because I see it as an inevitability, maybe because I've done more due diligence on what buck Showalter's career actually entails rather than kind of looking at it at a bird's eye view. And everybody knows that, you know, uh, losing in the playoffs uh, to Brad Osmus's uh, uh, <laughs> Tigers. And, you know, when he probably had the better team and, you know, the three manager of the year awards, like you mentioned, everybody kind of knows Buck's career from afar. But yeah. if you look at it more closely, I think you do see uh, a guy who is very willing to adapt, a guy who I don't think would push analytics aside. And look, I'm, I'm going to be fair. I don't like Buck Showalter on TV. And I think that colored me a little bit towards the negative because I find him to be boring. And some of the things that he says on television as an analyst to be a bit out of touch, you know, he's made some comments where I'm like, ah, I wouldn't like that guy running my team, but you know what though? Maybe he's just not great on TV. Some people are great on television. You know, you go to football and you look at, you know, Rex Ryan, Rex Ryan was, you know, (laughs) one of the most successful coaches for, for the jets, although a flawed Uh, coach to be sure, but he's also great on television and you could tell from a mile away, he'd be good on television because of everything about him. So, you know, maybe Buck's just not that guy and he has a harder time kind of expressing his ideas, but yeah, I would have been okay with anybody. And another problem that I had was just people mentioning things and this is not Buck's fault, but there were a lot of people on Mets Twitter and just on the media in general that would say, Oh, it's gotta be Buck Showalter. And then you'd be like, well, what about Bruce Bochy? And they're like, Oh, it can't be Bruce Bochy. He's out of touch. And it's like, well, both <laughs> managed basically the same length of time ago. They're both older guys right around the same age. They both have that like anti analytical slant to them or bias about them that people think the only difference is that Bruce Bochy has three world series. Yeah. Rings. I was going to say, like, Bochi has the, has the hardware, man. Like, if I would have been perfectly fine with Bochi. Again, I, the manager job is such a – I don't want to call it a token job at this point because the guys, of course, the guys going for the job right now are proceeding in their career. But in the big picture, I guess at least from a fan's perspective – the, the manager doesn't make all the decisions anymore. We saw it with Rojas. We saw it with Callaway, with Rojas even more so. But it's, you know, most stuff is out of these guys' hands. There's this game script. They, they mm-hmm. uh, who said it? Chili Davis said it to the Post that, you know, we would come in for pregame and there'd already be a lineup on the table. Like, you know, the, the game has changed. And I think Buck would be a, a perfect kind of guy to, kind of seen that transition and just keep everybody happy and, and has the, does what a manager is supposed to do while sitting back and letting the front office do their thing. I think Espato or, or Quattraro would be able to help that process. And it wouldn't just be a, another hand on deck to, to help out. It would actually be a, a, a feasible, you know, I don't know the phrase I'm looking for, but you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. One, one of the things that I've been championing over the last couple of days um, has been trying to pair two of these candidates together. Now, I understand that's probably unlikely, but could, because it would result in, you know, one of the guys taking a lateral move. But what I look at specifically is a potential tandem between Buck Showalter and Matt Catraro. And the reason yeah. why I bring that up is because, look, Joe Espada's got a little bit more pedigree. I know he's never been a major league manager, but he's managed in the winter ball. He's managed the world baseball classic team for Puerto Rico. So he has managerial experience at a very high level, albeit not at the major league level 
specifically. Whereas Cotraro is kind of lacking some of those things. Also, Espada is now sitting behind Dusty Baker in Houston. Now, look, Dusty Baker did a great job. Dusty Baker can probably have that job for as long as he would like to have it. But Joe Espada is in a good spot where he could be elevated when and if Dusty Baker no longer wants that job. The reason why I look at Cotraro potentially taking a lateral move is because he is sitting behind Kevin Cash. Kevin Cash is 43 years old. All the Rays do is win. He's new school. He's into analytics. He's the perfect manager for that team. He's basically Joe Madden 2.0, and he's a bit younger than when Joe Madden had the job anyways. So when you look at all those factors, Cotraro is not necessarily the person in waiting in Tampa. He might be there for a long time. He might be waiting for a while. And if I were him, I'd rather be the person in waiting behind Buck Showalter or Dusty Baker or Tony LaRussa, somebody who is not going to be in a job for 10 years than a guy who could easily have that job for another 10, 12, 15 years, dare I say it, in Kevin Cash, because they're not quick to make changes and there's no reason for them to do that. So I could see him, you know, potentially taking a lot move being with the Mets. Also, of course, when you look at it, it's New York. So it's a different challenge. It's a different opportunity. You also get to learn from a different organization and a different coach. Matt Cotraro has famously been with the Rays almost his entire baseball career, apart from a brief stint with the Indians, now Guardians as a coach. So, you know, he's basically been with the Rays forever. So to learn from Buck, to be under Buck, to go to New York, be with a rich owner, you know, kind of see a different side of baseball and potentially take that job after Buck is done. And I don't want to forecast Buck retiring before he even gets the job potentially, (laughs) but I just think something like that potentially makes sense. Do I think it's likely? No. Do I think it will happen? Probably not. But also let's not forget that if he takes the lateral move, he could still interview for managerial positions every year, even if he wanted to. So it doesn't necessarily take that off the table for him too, where people are like, well, he's such a hot candidate. He wouldn't want to take it. Well, what's the difference if he's the bench coach of Tampa or if he's the bench coach of the Mets, people are still going to want him if they want him. So that's just one of the things that I've looked at as a possibility. Oh, for sure. And, you know, if I had my pick, um, I am if, if Buck's the guy, Carlos Beltran is the bench coach. He's the one being groomed to be the next manager of the Mets. He's going to get his fair shot one day. I'm convinced of it. John, we're already going to be running much later than I thought. You have, <laughs> you have time to hang out? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a real quick break here from our sponsors. Hang tight. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Back here with us is uh, John Sapinaro from Till Mets Do Us Part podcast on the Chop Sports Network. Uh, John, we just kind of jumped into the whole managerial game. Um, I, I did want to answer. We had I put up a put your questions out this morning, but we had pretty much crickets. I think I got one question kicked in, but it's our boy Kyle S. Mets fan 04, and it kind of leads into our next topic. Um, he wants to know the difference between because he brought up Starling Marte, who has very, very stark um, outs above average from Statcast, is well above average, and his defensive run saved from Fangraphs are are well below average. He wanted to know why that is and what's the difference. Um, I am not a statistician, but I can answer this in very general terms. So DRS and same thing with ultimate zone rating, these are both based on, on runs. They're not based on outs. And it also takes a lot more into, into account than just uh, position or field uh, position, <laughs> positional fielding and, and distance and, and sprint speed. That, that's all. This is all the stuff that's coming from outs above average. This is actual positioning. It's actual data. It takes shifts into accounts and it's out-based. For DRS and UZR, that's zone-based. And again, it takes um, uh, arm into your arm speed and it really only uses, I guess, calculated zone-based, I don't want to say eye test, but they look at video and they generalize it. Um, StatCast is actual data and again, it's out-based. So they're they can go hand in hand as good ways to judge a player, but they're not really comparable in the sense of, uh, of judging the same skills. Now, as far as Starling Marte, I think him fielding his position, which is what OAA really gauges is 
showing his adeptness at fielding the center field position. He's a natural center fielder. Uh, he knows the <laughs> he knows the uh, the parameters. Um, I think they're taking in in DRS maybe. Uh, him throwing runners out, him holding runners back from taking a second base. That, that's all the stuff that's kind of taken into account with DRS. But, um, well, John, when you look at the, I guess, the current roster of what was left from last year, you have guys like Jeff McNeil and, and Dom Smith and J.D. Davis. You know, these defensive metrics, um, it's going to play a lot because these are, these are guys who are going to be fighting for bats if they're still here, fighting for playing time. I think McNeil probably more so than anything. Um, you're going to have to kind of find the places where he's going to be. Now, do you apply, I guess, which do you value more in a guy like McNeil, his defensive versatility or his pretty much proven? I know he had a really bad 2021, but his, his contact skills, his, his batting average, you know, uh, he's, he, you know, he's an elite batting average type hitter uh, that fell off, but, where does your value lie? Does he remain? You know, we have a, a few candidates as we just listed, but I'm curious where you stand. Well, you know, first off, um, I, I think that sometimes fans need to realize that, you know, defensive metrics are always evolving. They're yeah. not an exact science. It's not as easy as going, oh, batting average. Oh, on base percentage, on base plus slugging. It's very, those are very easy things to factor in because sometimes the defensive statistics, whether they are UZR or defensive run saved or outs above average, they might fly in the face of what you would say the eye test is. If you watch a player every single day, you're like, oh, that guy's good or that guy's bad. And this is why. And then you're like, oh, I think he's good, but his defensive run saves say that he's trash. In the field. <laughs> so I think you need to kind of just take those stats with a grain of salt and realize that none of them are exact sciences. Like you said, outs above average is a little bit more a twinge more towards the exact than UZR or defensive run save because there's just so many more factors that play into that. Having said all of that, when I watch Jeff McNeil day in and day out, I think Jeff McNeil is an above average, very competent defensive player, generally speaking. I think that at third, I think it at second, I think it at left, and I think it in right field. And so I do value his defensive versatility. And if I'm not mistaken, his defensive run saved is positive at all four of those positions that I just mentioned. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I believe uh, after the 2021 season, that was something that remained true for his career. He was an above average player in terms of defensive run saved at all four positions I just mentioned. When you take into account his bat and what he can do offensively. Jeff McNeil is the least of the three that I would like to move on from of the three players that you mentioned. Now I would give up any three of those players in the right deal to make the team better. Let me say that. But I also think that as the team is currently constituted, Jeff McNeil is your starting second baseman. I think Escobar plays third, obviously Lindor plays short Alonzo's at first. And then the outfield is what the outfield is. It's Canna, it's Marte, it's Nimmo. And I think obviously McNeil can slide around and play a couple different spots, but I think day in and day out, he's going to be your second baseman. I also would like to say that I expect that to change. I think the Mets will make another signing for a position player. I'd like to see it be Chris Bryant because again, of his positional versatility, I think he brings a lot to the table. I also think that while the Mets have, moved forward and taken their offense into a different place. I think not re-signing Javi Baez means that there is an opening on this team for right-handed pop to protect Alonzo. And I think that Chris Bryant fits that bill. I also think that while Baez is a very versatile player, having played second, short, and third, and even some center field when he first came up, he's basically a left side of the infield player plus second base. And I think they look at Bryant as a guy who can play third or left or right or first or DH. And I think when you look at the top prospects the Mets have in Vientos, Mauricio, and Beatty, All three of those guys are either third baseman, shortstop, second baseman, maybe left field for Vientos. So when you look at those guys, I think it's easy to plug in Bryant and say, Bryant is your third baseman for the next year or two. You can sign him to a five, six-year deal if that's what it takes to get it done. And then he can move and be your right fielder. He can move and be your left fielder. He provides some insurance for Alonzo at first base. I think the DH is coming in the new CBA. He can be a DH towards the end of the conversation. 
contract. So I think Bryant gives you so much versatility in that spot. In that case, it would slide McNeil into the super utility role, which I think he would be great at. I think he's shown the ability to do that. He'd probably get 500 to 600 at bats playing second, third, left, right, maybe first here or there, especially if they trade uh, Dom Smith in a package, he can back up Alonzo at first base. He's done that in the minors and he can probably get a handful of at bats at DH. So that's the direction I would go in. If I was running the team, as far as I'm concerned, the other two guys are much more expendable in Dom Smith and especially JD Davis. Yeah. You know, I, I'm with you on the part that if, if any of these guys can make, if moving one of these guys can make the Mets better, you know, it's a business. I think they're okay with it. I think his fans, of course, we have attachments to guys like Dom and, and, and Jeff McNeil and JD, but, you know, um, it's all a process. These things happen. With McNeil, I do see the value 100%. And him in a super utility role, I, I think, is is ideal. Whether it's, if it's bouncing between second and third, whether he's getting reps in the corner outfield spots. I know you referenced DRS, but... Even on StatCast, he's, um, he was positive OAA at all three of those positions last year. He didn't play right, but left third and second. Uh, 2020, short season, he was negative two at third base. But before that, I mean, he was 2019, he was plus four at third base. So he, he certainly got the chops to play anywhere. I do like him moving around the diamond. I also think that Bryant would be a terrific addition. But, you know, even if the Mets have to go a, a lower tier to kind of fill that fourth outfielder spot, um, I'm perfectly fine with a McNeil-Escobar combo at second, a McNeil-Cano-Guillorme combo. I mean, uh, McNeil-Escobar at third, uh, McNeil-Guillorme-Cano combo at second. You know, make it all work. You know, if Cano's making $20 million, you're going to have to find some some way to to to, to make it to make it worth the Mets' while. Um, as long as he's still hitting and he's healthy, Give him reps. If the DH is there, I mean, that's a, a, a huge plus for the Mets. But I know last I heard, the on-field rules were kind of backburnered. We'll see what what uh, what goes into the CBA once that gets figured out. But, um, you know, Dom Smith has shown the ability to to just be an ultimate team player. He embraces the the bench role. He, he learned how to play left field, like literally out of left field. Um, <laughs> He's a very competent first baseman. Uh, he can pinch hit. He can DH if that's the case. Uh, he's left-handed bat off the bench. I-, I would love to see him stick around. Like, I see the benefits of having him, of having him here. Because um, I think, you know, I think the Mets' shortcomings in the last few years was trying to rely on that young pre-arb or arbitration core as, you know, your step into the future. Yeah, 2019 was a really good offensive year for that group. But, um I think they they kind of were hoping that they that these guys were more. I think if you're relegate and not even relegating, just kind of shifting the priority of McNeil and Dom and even JD. I had a story on the Apple this week about JD. Um, his metrics, like not his, and even his average wasn't far off, and his OBP is still terrific. But his metrics were right on par with his 2019 season. I mean, he had the, he had a higher barrel uh, higher barrel rate this year by almost a. I think it was actually more than a full percentage point. So 1.3% higher than he was in 2019. In 2019, I mean, his exit below was higher than Pete Alonso's. Of course, that was uh, the ball properties. But, um, you know, these guys all have value as bench players, in my opinion. And JD, even as a, as a pinch hitter, DH, if you have to put him in the field, you have to put him in the field. Um, I think they could fit. And I think the Mets have decisions to make. But, you know, if they can get a fifth starter in a deal for a, a JD and a prospect, of course, you go for it. If they can go find a third baseman in a trade and, and package all three of these guys, you know, you go for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, There's going to be a lot of options. No, I, I totally agree with you on all of that. You know, it's not that I would get any of these guys or I'm in a quick hurry to get any of them off the team. I right. always just looked at, and I think we talked about it when you were on Till Mets to us part because it was earlier in the offseason. I always looked at the biggest four catalysts of change for this offense, which clearly needed an overhaul because of how bad they were all season as Conforto, J.D. Davis, Dom Smith, and Jeff McNeil. They all, to some degree, like you just alluded to, failed 
at their jobs, at their respective jobs, because you looked at how good this offense was in 2019. You looked at some of the breakout campaigns from a guy like Dom Smith, albeit in a small sample size in 2020, and none of them held up their end of the bargain. I mean, Conforto hit 198 for a bulk of the season. I know he got back to a respectable, quote unquote, respectable 230 by the end of the year, and he came on strong when none oh, his of last, really mattered. Yeah, his last two months were strong. They were. They were. And look, it's no small task to get your average from under 200 to around, I think he finished at 230 or 233, somewhere in that ballpark. So, yeah. um, but with Michael Conforto, I've always said he was the easy odd man out because he's going to get a contract. And I think he deserves a contract. I think Michael Conforto deserves somewhere in the $20 million a year range for something uh, four to five years in length. I think that the kind of ball player he's been when you factor in defense and you factor in upside, I think he is that kind of ball player. I just don't think if you're the Mets and you had him for six years, largely mediocre years, and he has the worst year of his career in a walk year, I don't think that you can reward that with a big contract. So for me, he was the easy odd man out. Then the next one in line was J.D. Davis, because I think that for all of his positives, I don't think he's a starting player on a winning team, maybe at DH. But like you said, yeah. the Mets have Cano and the Mets need to make a little bit more decisions based on what they're going to do with Cano than they can with J.D. Davis. Plus, because J.D. Davis is a pre-arbitration eligible player, uh, he can go and fetch you something in a deal with another team. Oh, and then sure. the other two guys is where it gets murky. I already talked about Jeff McNeil. <laughs> I love Dom Smith. I like him as a player. I like him at even more more as a person and a personality. I think he's an important part of the fabric of this team. But when we were coming out of 2020, everybody said, oh, it's easy. Dom is your first baseman because he's really good at that. And he's left-handed. That brings you benefits there. Pete moves to DH. Boom. It's all settled. It's all sorted. Well, again, we've got Robinson Cano. The other part of it is Pete is a star. And you do not move stars around for guys who had one flash in the pan 60 game season where they were really good. If Pete is the kind of player that doesn't care if he DHs or not, then fine. Put Dom Smith at first, DH Pete. But if Pete comes to me and I'm Buck Showalter or I'm whoever's managing this team and whoever, you know, I'm Billy Epler and he says, look, I feel better when I play the field. Well, Pete gets to play the field. Why? Because <laughs> He can go out there and hit 40 to 45 home runs by accident. He's going to knock in a crazy amount of runs. And oh, by the way, he's gotten better at first base too. He'll yes. never be as good as Dom Smith more than likely, but you don't move stars for guys who have shown you very little. And I'm sorry, I like Dom Smith, but he's not the kind of guy that you displace a guy like Alonzo for. That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, and I think Alonzo, he's made it very clear he wants to be a first baseman. Of course, it's going to be whatever the, the team asks of him, and I think he's made that very clear. He'll always do what the team asks, which is, I think I love that quality of this core, that everyone's kind of willing to do it. You've heard Dom say it, you've heard J.D. say it, you've heard McNeil say it. I think that was a really endearing quality to that group. That being said, um, you know, you mentioned it, Pete really did improve his metrics at first base last season. I think on plays towards the bag, so on plays towards the line, it's one of the best defensive first basemen in baseball. <laughs> on plays towards second base, not so much. But, but again, this is progress. Compared to where he was a couple of years ago, this is leaps and bounds of progress. You have to wonder how Dom fits in. You have to wonder how, how he's valued. Because Dom could go elsewhere and be a starting first baseman. To I would say at least half the league, at least. And like you were saying with J.D., um, he had, you know, a lot of interest at the trade deadline last year. This is per him himself. He said it towards the end of the season. Um, you have to wonder where that might fall. If a team does see, oh, you know what, maybe if he's placed a little bit differently, maybe if we work with his footwork at third base, he can be a better third baseman because he's got a cannon for an arm mm -hmm. and who knows, maybe the Mets are looking into that as well. But um, yeah, if they hold value, I think every Avenue has to be explored. Uh, 
John, I wanted to touch on Hall of Fame real quick, and I'm not going to get into the whole because that'll be a whole hour episode at least. <laughs> but, but before we change gears, can I just mention something of Robinson Cano really quick? Please do, yeah. Because uh, I, I, you said him a few times, and I said him a few times, and we were very adamant about how he, you know, he's he's somebody the Mets have to factor in. Look, he's got two more years on his deal, and people are so quick to say, "Let's buy him out. Let's buy him out. Let's buy him out." Well, look. Guys, if you buy him out, you got to pay him. And I'm not saying that that's off the table. It should be on the table. But every avenue with Robinson Cano needs to be on the table, including having him being your starting DH, especially when you look at the way Dom Smith and McNeil and J.D. Davis all faltered offensively last year. I mean, I would argue, who would you rather have, a healthy Robinson Cano or a healthy Dom Smith out there taking DH reps? Now, just based on the last two years alone, I'm going to lean a little bit towards Cano. Plus, like I said, you're paying him regardless. So it doesn't make sense for the Mets to cut bait with him now in December or in January or in February. He's got to come to spring training, see what he's got. If he's terrible, you can cut him then. If he's good, he makes the team out of spring training. He's a part of your team. If he's terrible for two months, he goes to the bench and then you can decide if you want to cut him then. So Met fans, just be prepared that Robinson Cano is at least going to be on this team at the start and through most of spring training at the very least. I'm not saying that they can't cut him. I'm not saying that they shouldn't cut him. If he is dead weight and paying him to go away makes the team better, Cohen will do that. But at this point, you may have to just have him on your roster because if I'm paying a guy, I'd rather pay him to do something than pay him to go home or to pay him to wind up on another team where he's going to hit, you know, 15 home runs, let's say in a part-time role. Just have him on your team. you got to pay him regardless. The contract's guaranteed. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy him out unless he's absolutely cooked. If he's cooked and he's just dead weight and you can't trade him, yeah, you have to buy him out. But I exactly. certainly give him through spring training. I even give him through the first couple of months, even if he's on the bench in a pinch hitting spot. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see Robinson Cano come up with guys and runners in scoring position with two outs in the eighth. You really need a hit? Sure, bring Cano in. This guy's he's headed to the Hall of Fame one. Well, he would have been headed to the Hall of Fame one. <laughs> but I mean, in general, I mean, hey, if the if the stigma changes towards PEDs, I mean, he was popped after testing began, but um he was one of the greatest hitting second baseman of all time. Big Robbie Cano fan. But, you know, even if he's hitting and the Mets are saying, oh, you know, somebody needs a, a veteran presence. Somebody needs an infielder. Somebody needs a DH. They could eat half his contract, trade him and get something back for him. I certainly let that play out and see, and see what happens. But um, I did want to I want to give you this is back to the Hall of Fame. I want to give you mm-hmm. two sets of stats before we finish up here. These guys, they're viewed as fringe. I'm going to give you two sets of stats and I'm going to see if one, you can pick who they are and two, tell me if they belong in the hall of fame. These are career numbers. First three, 16, four, 14, five, 39. That's a slash line. One thirty three OPS plus OPS plus 2,500 plus hits. 592 doubles, 369 home runs. Is that a Hall of Fame career? Can I get the slash line one more time? 316, 414, 539. Yes. To me, that, that's a Hall of Fame player. Okay. Do you have any idea who it is? No. This is Todd Helton. Now, Todd Helton, of course, numbers, you have to look at that slash and say, okay, well, that's maybe a little inflated. It's pre-humidor course field. Yeah. The 133 OPS, I'm with you. That's Hall of Fame stature, without a doubt. The 133 OPS plus, that's, of course, adjusted for Park. Yeah. Um, he's still 30. I mean, that's a career that's 30% above average. Now, this is his prime. I have his prime. I mean, a prime is supposed to be much shorter. It could be, I think, seven years. This is an 11-year prime. 329, 428. This is still helping. 329, 428, 568. 141 OPS over that span. He's got 53.7 wins above replacement. That's 10th in the majors over that span. That's 1998 to 2009. This is not a steroids guy, but that does overlap into the steroid era. Sure. That's got to be Hall of Fame to me. I, I don't see how he's not getting more steam. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I understand. And I, I guess to some degree appreciate the fact that baseball is quote unquote, the hardest hall of fame to get into. Sure. But I also don't think that that's a badge of courage or a badge of honor rather that the writers should wear, yeah. you know, if a guy's numbers dictate that he's a hall of famer, he's a hall of famer. It's not Todd Helton's fault that he played in Colorado pre humidor or mostly pre-humidor. It's not his fault. You know, I thought we were championing guys staying with the same organization. People get giddy over Joe Maurer staying with the Twins and all these, you know, sweetheart stories of Joe Votto staying with the Reds and all this stuff. Look, Todd Helton was great. And again, let's talk eye test, going back to what we were talking about with UZR. I watched Todd Helton play a lot. Todd Helton was damn good at baseball, period. End of story. He was so good. He had a sweet swing. He drove in runs. He hit enough home runs. Now, if you want to say, okay, some of those numbers are inflated. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they are. But how do you arbitrarily then dictate what he would do if he played in another ballpark? Also, why is it fair that those numbers are inflated because of Coors Field? But again, to take a guy like Joey Votto, and I don't have his numbers in front of me, but he plays in one of the easiest band boxes to hit in as well. You know, the air is not lighter, but it's a small ballpark. And huh. Philadelphia is a small ballpark. Like, So why does that not matter. It's like this this Coors Field bias, and I, I don't get it. A guy's either a Hall of Famer or he's not, and he plays where he plays, and that's it. And for me, it can be that simple. You look at a guy and you go, yeah. <laughs> and when I look at Todd Helton, I say, yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, it was it was unquestionable. Uh, when I was watching, and again, this was my formative years. I was, you know, 1998, I was 15 years old. I mean, I was, Todd Helton was in my wheelhouse. Yes, yeah, I, was I, was, I was 12, 13 years old in 1998. So it's the wheelhouse of, of like being enamored with baseball yeah. in a in a different way as an adult, you know, different way than when you're an adult, but like in a very romantic way. And I'm like, oh, my God, like Todd Helton, and you're collecting baseball yes. cards and you're looking at yes. the best. like I don't collect baseball cards anymore. And I know different things about stats and different things about the game and some ways better. But you're watching something. And like I remember being like, wow, Todd Helton's a guy that you got to watch. Todd Helton's a guy when he comes in and plays the match, you got to worry about. And then when you look at those stats, that guy's a Hall of Famer, man. Oh, without a doubt. Now, it, to me, of course, you know, to us, watching Helton, you were watching a Hall of Famer. Hopefully he gets his due. If, if Larry Walker got in, Todd Helton has to get in. But the next guy, most people will say, no, I wasn't watching a Hall of Famer. If you look at his stats, it says otherwise. Here, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you his prime numbers first. And it's the same exact years as, as Helton. So if that's a giveaway, you know, it's helpful. But 1998, 2009, he hit 301, 406, 497, 472 doubles, 253 homers, 341 stolen bases. I said that Helton was eighth in F4 over that span. Well, this guy was, uh, I'm sorry, Helton was 10th. This guy was eighth. The only guys ahead of him during this span are Alex Rodriguez, Barry Bonds, Albert Pujols, Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, Derek Jeter, and I can't read my chicken scratch, but there's someone else there. Anyway, this is obviously not a, a power hitter. This is more of a, a well-rounded player. I mean, not even arguably. He was one of the best players of his generation. Can you point out who I'm talking about, first of all? Uh, can I ask what position he played or at least primarily played? Corner outfielder. Corner outfielder. Ah, oh, man. That's tough. Does he have any gold gloves? Barely. I don't think he has one. He only has two all-star appearances. Which really? Is, which is criminal. If you look at his numbers and look at his – those are, that was his prime. So he, he had a 903 OPS through his prime with – 400 plus doubles, 250 home runs and 300 plus stolen bases. You would think this guy was would be a, a superstar. What what was what was his career line? Career line, line 291, 395, 475, 128 OPS plus. Oh, here's oh, here's a good one. There's only two players in major league history with at least 1000 runs scored, 1000 RBI, 1000 walks 
250 home runs, 400 stolen bases, 500 doubles, and a 290 average. One of them is Barry Bonds. The other is this guy. I can't place who it is. And he's not, and dude, he's not even getting steam. He's on the ballot this year. He's not even getting steam. It's Bobby Abreu. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, dude, and, and someone said it today. Like, he wasn't even the best player on his own team. And I, I had to say, I'm like, you know what? You might be right. But boy, um, the, the, this is the type of case that blows my mind because as a whole, and even through his career, so underrated. But you look back and it's, oh my God, this guy was a superstar. Yeah. Bob, it, when you were watching Bobby Abreu, did you think he was a Hall of Famer? Okay, so you're right. Those stats are eye-popping in a way. Mind-blowing. You know, I, I would mind. never have guessed that they would be that good. Um, I, see, I'm going to say that Bobby Abreu is not a Hall of Famer. Just by the same metric I applied to Todd Helton, just watching him all those years against the Mets, and then, you know, in those years that he had with the Yankees, very good player, Yeah, almost a great player, but I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. No, I don't. You know, I know that those, I, I know that those, some of those stats might lead you to believe otherwise, but I just, for me, he's not. And, and that's the thing, you know, maybe my system is as arbitrary as any writers is, but you know, I, and I hate to bring this guy into the conversation, but Mike Francesa always used to say he's either a Hall of Famer or he's not, you know, years on the ballot and analyzing the numbers and putting the numbers in context. You know, how do you change your opinion on a guy? If you're one person, if you're Tim Ryder, he's a hall of famer for you today. He's a hall of famer for you tomorrow, next week, next month, six months from now, 10 years from now, people change their minds. And I don't necessarily get that. Now, the thing with Barry Bonds and him, that's that line. That's great. But to me, Bobby Abreu is not a hall of famer. Yeah. You know, and I get that. I totally get that, that point of view. And, and I can't disagree with anybody who has that point of view because I'm with you. When I was watching Bobby Abreu, no, I was not watching a Hall of Famer. But, man, those, those numbers are just uh, they, they 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 dropped my jaw to the floor when I when I was sitting there putting them together. I know our buddy Matt Brownstein had something up earlier today and that got me poking around and everybody knows my stance on Billy Wagner. We could have spent time here, but I'm looking at Abreu and I'm like, wow, that's just, um, what an incredible career. Very happy. He got to finish it up with the Mets. I thought that was cool, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm hoping one day he, 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 he gets his, uh, he gets his due. Um, what, what, a, what a terrific ball player. I mean, I'm with you on Billy Wagner. I know that's not the topic of conversation, but that's another oh, thing. Oh, go for you, it, man. That's another thing you absolutely have to look at is, you know, how many closers are in the Hall of Fame and where his numbers line up. It, it's one yeah. of those things where, you know, when you said to me, when you gave me his slash line for Abreu and, you know, then you turned around and told me, well, he's a corner outfielder and he's only got two all-star appearances and he doesn't have any gold gloves. I was like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you kind of you do measure it differently. You know, no, 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 outfielders I- usually big boppers or they got to play defense, some combination of the two. And so to me, that does factor in. Of course, if you if you think back to and you and I did in our in our formative years and a little bit beyond watch. Uh, Bobby Abreu's entire career, you know, he was also a guy that had a bad reputation at times as a defensive player, couldn't go near the wall, was afraid to, you know, so when you start to factor in things like that, I think for me, that's when I look at it and go, not a Hall of Famer. Billy Wagner, as a closer, you look at his numbers, I mean, he's got to be in. It's crazy because, you know, Mariano Rivera is obviously the benchmark for closers in Major League Baseball history. There has never been a player as dominant as Mariano Rivera for the entirety of his career the way that he was, right? But there's him and then there's everybody else. You look at some of the other closers that are in the Hall of Fame, Billy Wagner is as good, if not better, for me than any one of them not named Mariano Rivera. Yeah. No, Trevor Hoffman, if Trevor Hoffman got into the Hall of Fame and him and Billy Wagner's their career, their careers pretty much over um, overlapped. I think Hoffman mm-hmm. had like an extra 200 innings and he finished with like another three wins above replacement. But Billy Wagner's ERA had him beat by about a half a run, struck out a ton more guys. They walked around the same amount. They gave up the same amount of home runs um, like per nine. 
yeah, you know, Billy Wagner, in the, if you look at the closer role as it was when he was around, like you can't compare him to, to Lee Smith and you can't compare him to, um, no, of course you can't compare him to Mo, but um, yeah, Billy Wagner, but uh, above and beyond a Hall of Famer. One guy who's not a Hall of Famer, but I was so blown away when I looked at his numbers today, um, Tim Lincecum, who, of course, it was only a four-season run, won two, uh, two Cy Youngs over this span. So over four seasons, <laughs> 132 games, pitched to a – where is it, where is it, where is it? God damn it. Excuse me. <laughs> 2.81 ERA, 143 ERA plus. The guy was an animal. Of course, it wasn't – the longevity wasn't there, but I was so taken aback by him. Yeah, what a, what no. a fun, fun pitcher. What an unbelievable player to watch in his prime. I mean, he was so good at what he did and he was so dominant. Like you said, the two Cy Youngs and, you know, with, with pitchers, sometimes it happens, right? Everybody's always going to point to the fact that Koufax didn't pitch for a long time. And, you know, Koufax was incredibly dominant for a very, 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 very small stretch, but he was far and away the best pitcher in the league for that small stretch over that entire small stretch. And I think Lincecum was almost there but not quite enough. I think if Lincecum wins another Cy Young and has a dominant, you know, five or six year stretch instead of a four year stretch, I think we're talking about Lincecum as potentially being able to get in because he was, he was the guy you did not want to face in baseball when he was on and he was, he was the best pitcher. So, you know, I think he falls just a little bit short because again, you know, some guys, they get arm injuries and it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's not to take away from what they did when they were in their prime. And I I just have this weird, you know, I think that too many things in baseball are too arbitrary. I'll be the first person to tell you, I don't care about steroids as far as the hall of fame goes. Do I think baseball is a better game now that they have, you know, legislated steroids out of it for the most part? Yeah, I do. I think steroids are bad for you. And I think that, you know, you shouldn't be incentivized to take them and take years off of your life just so that you can play baseball. But do I think it's some kind of scarlet letter that needs to live on your resume forever? No, especially when, depending on who you talk to, there are people that played during the proverbial steroid era that say that it was somewhere between 85 and 90% of players doing it. And if that's not an even playing field, I don't know what is. So if Barry Bonds is the best player among them, he should be in. Roger Clemens, piece of crap individual. He should be in the (laughs) Hall of Fame. I mean, Ty Cobb's in the Hall of Fame. Look at him. Look at the piece of crap person he was. So, you know, there are certain things like I I don't get how things get held against them. I just got into an argument with somebody about, you know, the Houston Astros and they were like, you have to strip the title. I'm like, strip the title? Guys, we're grownups here. They strip the titles in the NCAA, right? They strip the titles. They take away highs and all this stuff when things go wrong. When you look back at it, you go, I'm pretty sure USC still won that national championship, right? It's vacated, but like you remember it. I remember it. It happened. Stripping the title does nothing. Right. Taking away the Heismans does nothing. So like you're going to (laughs) strip the title. And then again, what do you do? Like I was saying with, with Helton, what do you do arbitrarily? You just give it to the other team. You just say, Oh, the Dodgers are the world series champions. Or you say, Oh, well it has to be the Yankees because they beat the Yankees first. Well, how do you decide it guys? (laughs) Yes. Is it better that we found out the Astros cheated? Absolutely. Do I think that they cheated? Sure. Do I think that they should have been penalized? Of course. But that's it. They won the World Series. Also, let's not act like baseball does not have a longstanding tradition of (laughs) cheating, whether it's spitballs, scuffing the balls, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff up to steroids, up to stealing signs with technology, without technology. Baseball's been around too long. It's got a sordid history. Hell, there was a whole stretch of time where half of the population couldn't even play because of segregation. So let's not talk about how there's some kind of sterling reputation around the game. (laughs) This is outstanding. Look at us. (laughs) I asked for a half an hour. I think our recording's up, up, reaching an hour right now. We're just, it sounds like we're just getting started. No, but really, uh, just to, to, to cap off the, uh, the Hall of Fame, I agree with you on the steroid stuff because it was a level playing field. By far, it was a level playing field. And guys set themselves apart from others. You know, Manny Ramirez, I don't care that he was taking whatever he was taking. He was one of the greatest hitters I ever saw, in my eyes, 
every time I saw Manny Ramirez, I was watching a Hall of Famer. Barry Bonds, no question, greatest baseball player to ever live, in my opinion. Roger Clemens, that's a curious situation because, all right, so he was cooked after a very nice run. He was pretty much cooked in like 96 last year in Boston, even 95, cooked. Got to Toronto in 97, looked like a fucking pro wrestler. Excuse my language. Had the goatee, had his barrel chest out, bro. He looked like a monster. And, uh, and boom, career was revived. You know that, does Clemens get in for his Red Sox career? Maybe. He had a really uh, historical run there. But, you know, you have to, it, there's a certain nuance when it comes to this, especially if you want to play gatekeeper at the Hall of Fame. In the same respect, though, I mean, you have um, uh, just it's it's it, you can't erase an entire era of the game. It's just how it was. This is it. it, it, it we yeah. could go on forever, John. I, I agree with you. You know, I think Clemens is is kind of the case where you can start to split hairs because he very clearly had two different careers. And if you want to say that, you know, in 96, he started or, you know, the 96 offseason into 97, he started yeah. using steroids and then he went on, you know, to have this second career. He's kind of the case where you could say that. And I won't argue that with you. You know, if you're saying, look, oh, I looked at his first. Yeah. If you're like, I'm going to look at his first, you know, 10 to 12 years in the league and I'm going to say, okay, does he make it in on that? And if the answer is no for you, the answer can be no. But yeah, I mean, if you go to the baseball hall of fame, you cannot deny entire eras of existence. There's the dead ball era. There is the, you know, uh, pre like there's the segregation era. You have to talk Mm. about these things, whether it's baseball or just as a society, like this stuff happened and you need to acknowledge that it happened. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're championing for it. When you go to the wing, of baseball before that talks about all the things that happened before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. They're not like, Oh my God, great baseball was the best thing all ever. They're like, <laughs> Oh, this is just what happened. So you don't have to sit there and go, Oh, baseball with steroids was the best. You just need to say baseball had a period of time where steroids were not properly legislated. This is the story. And you tell the story. And if guys deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't believe in putting asterisks next to their plaques or next to their names or whatever. But if you also want to tell the story in the other wing, like in the wing where you have all the plaques, they get the plaque. But then in Mm -hmm. the, the wing where you're talking about that era of baseball, if you want to say that Barry Bonds was in Balco and you want to say that Alex Rodriguez tested positive for steroids and you want to say like these guys need to be in. They need to be in. Pete Rose is a garbage person, but he needs to be in the Hall of Fame. The guy with the most hits in the history of baseball should be in the Hall of Fame. Now, yeah. or, or you got to start taking everybody out. Like I said, take Ty Cobb out of the Hall of Fame then. He yeah, was, if, it was, if it was just the gambling with Rose, I'd say put him in. Because now gambling's gone mainstream, but it's not. Uh, you know, the new stuff that's come out and I guess even just court documents that have come out, um, not good with underage girls in the clubhouse. And yeah, not, that's not true. great. Not that's great. Um, and it, his and playing I'm not career, supporting that in any way, shape or form. Oh, of course, obviously. of course. But his playing career alone, of course, he's a Hall of Famer. He's the most hits in the history of the game. You know, uh, he was incredible. I, I missed his career. I, I only saw maybe the last year or two, and I was only just grasping baseball at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a tough one. I, I, I don't, I don't reinstate him, but I certainly put a note up in the Hall of Fame. Say, hey, Pete Rose leads the majors in major league history um, in hits. Yeah, I, I think the reinstating thing, and I, I you know, Pete Rose is is a good case for this, right? Because. You know, I don't think that reinstatement should have to do with the Hall of Fame. I also think that not every Hall of Fame career needs to be necessarily celebrated. So you mentioned a lot of things about Pete Rose from the gambling to all the sordid stuff that he did after the fact. You know, again, I I said it. Pete Rose is a garbage person. I don't think (laughs) Pete Rose deserves his day. I don't think Pete Rose deserves the, you know, enshrinement ceremony and the, you know, people standing up and celebrating his career. I don't think Pete Rose deserves that, but you know, could you just put a plaque in there that says Pete Rose and this is his career stats. You could do that. Not everybody is, 
you know, Derek Jeter, or Ken Griffey Jr. or Tom Seaver or, you know, the list goes on and on where you go, this person just deserves to be celebrated for what they contributed to baseball or pick the sport, whatever, you know, some people just, yeah, you know what? Yeah. That guy, get that guy a plaque, but like, we don't need him out there talking about how baseball was the best thing for him. Like I even feel that way about Barry Bonds, like Barry Bonds, kind of a shitty dude, excuse my language. So no, like, it's okay. You know, if you want to put Barry Bonds in the hall of fame, put him in the hall of fame. Do I need to see him give a speech at, at, at you know, uh, in Cooperstown? Not necessarily. I don't need to see him give a speech. So I think that some of the rules and and some of the procedures kind of just need to be evolved because again, there are steroid users in the hall of fame. There are bad people in the hall of fame. There are people with criminal records in the hall of fame. There are awful, awful people. And you either need to go back and take them all out or you need to just put them all in for what they did on the baseball field. Oh, without a doubt. And and I think time will reflect on this. I don't know if if this 15 year or this 10 year voting span, because it ends for Bonds and Clemens now, but we're going to see more guys coming through the pipeline. And, and, you know, you have to wonder how time is going to reflect on this. But, you know, in the long run, I think everybody knows, just like everyone knows. Yeah. Pete Rhodes was probably the greatest hitter to ever play the game. But, uh, you know, it, it, his story has been told. Um, in Barry Bonds case, you know, like you said, there are some very, very disturbing parts of his story. Very, you know, not just being a jerk with the media, even more disturbing stuff than that, but are, you know, unquestionably the greatest ball player I've ever seen. So, you know, there's so much nuance here. There's always going to be inner circle hall of famers. Um, whether the whole system needs to be overhauled or not, whether it's still a writer's job to do this when it's so easily influenced by feelings for a player, whatever the case may be, it's just, it's on a case to case. So nuanced. Um, I'm curious to see where it all leads. John, my producer is going to absolutely kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to send him an extra Christmas bonus this year, but um, I can't thank you enough for spending some time. And this was great. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. I, I didn't think when you text me and said it was going to be 30 minutes, I was like, all right, we'll see. There's too much stuff to talk about in 30 minutes. But yeah, I appreciate you having me on. This has been an absolute blast. Oh, cool, man. I, and again, everybody, you could find John Sapner. Uh, you know what? I said your name probably in my head the first like month that I had you in my, that, I, that we started interacting as Saparano in my head, but it's not. It's Saparano. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah. Let me just correct myself before I mess it up. It's John Sapinaro, and that's Till Mets Do Us Part podcast on the Chop Chop Sports Network. Um, of course, your uh, your co-host Ibby is. Uh, I hope he's well. Yes, he's a little under the weather today, but uh, ah. we're actually we're actually not doing an episode this week because uh, I booked some work um, and I'm not going to be available past today. And he is uh, he he got a little bit of. Um, he got, he got something from his uh, young daughter. You got, got yeah. kind of uh, a thing that you get, like when you have kids in school age. So oh, yeah. he's recovering from that. Um, germ factories, bro. They're germ ex- factories. Exactly. Exactly. It's not my story to tell, but uh, he's, he's doing better <laughs> today. I texted with him. Uh, Till Mets do his part has been fantastic. We started it right before uh, last season started. And uh, Ibby's a great co-host. Chop Sports Network has been absolutely fantastic. And so if anybody listening to this wants to follow us, um, you can just follow us at Till Mets Do Us Part across uh, all the social media platforms. And you can follow me at John Sapanaro, J-O-H-N-S-A-P-O-N-A-R-O. And that's where you can find me and interact with me on uh, all things Mets and some other stuff too. Excellent, man. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, everyone, you know where to find John now. Uh, go check out Till Mets Do Us Part. It's really outstanding content. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Hopefully we have some more uh, some more news to discuss. But until then, you know the sign-off. It's Let's Fucking Go Mets, and we'll see you guys next time. Peace. <laughs>